saving money on everything for your projects. Now at Menards, we have it all for garden and landscaping essentials. Visit our outdoor garden center today and update your backyard space. Grid accents lattice panels have a timeless design with an innovative design that's simple to install and requires almost no maintenance. Say big on lattice panel options at Menards. View our entire selection of garden center products today on Menards.com. I'm Virginia Heffernan, and welcome to This is Critical. We have a wild and hairy show today, so I'm going to get right into it. But first, undo this cultural creed as soon as possible. That your own mask and COVID practices are rational, and everyone else's are superstitious entries in a culture war, vice signaling or virtue signaling. You don't have to give in to considering a mask nothing but a tribal badge. But it helps to remember that plagues make everyone a bit crazy. And two years into living in this swarm of lethal microbes, it's unlikely that you alone are thinking clearly. I mean, what are the chances? Give in to your own irrationality, keep doing what feels right, and lay off savagely judging others. That can't be good for your immune system. Today's guest is Rebecca Herzig. She's the author of Plucked, a history of hair removal. She's a professor of gender and sexuality studies at Bates College and a visiting scholar at the Center for Science and Justice at UC Santa Cruz. Welcome to This is Critical, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm just so happy to have you here. So hair, and in particular body hair, is not, you know, the kind of thing that makes your heart sing, thinking of, uh, you know, little pieces of hair in uncomfortable places. Um, so what drew you to this topic? It's, uh, it's an obvious question. I get asked it a lot. And the, the thing that I always have difficulty answering about it is I don't understand this to be a book about hair. Isn't that funny? Mm. Even though mm-hmm. obviously it has it in the title and all those things. Um, I'm really interested in suffering and which kinds of suffering, either as individuals or collectively as a culture, we take to be um, normal, you know, routine, habitual, unproblematic, which ones we take to be a problem, unjust, illegitimate, all those kinds of abuses. Um, And then which kinds of suffering we understand to be heroic or virtuous or um, something aspirational that we should strive to. And one of the things that I figured out pretty quickly is that those ideas change very rapidly um, over time. And then they obviously get um, distributed across society in really different ways, right? So people who are gendered in some ways are supposed to suffer more for some goals than people who are gendered in other ways. Uh, There are different racial, uh, national, regional, class-based ideas about all this stuff too. Um, Mm -hmm. Occupational, all that sort of stuff. So I was interested in how that all got worked out around our ideas about the body. Um, which kinds of things we're supposed to do to be normal, um, to be beautiful, to be hygienic, to be, and which kinds of things um, are considered maybe masochistic or pathological or frivolous or vain, those kinds of things. And hair removal turned out to be a really (laughs) uh, loaded site for all of those kinds of ideas. I mean, yeah, that's a fascinating way in. I mean, I remember reading about some trend among millennials or maybe Gen X in the early aughts. Um, it was just this incredibly painful to have this specific 
type of hair removal done. Like it was more painful than a Brazilian wax. And some people were taking pain pills before the waxing, before they were getting hair ripped from their most sensitive spots. I mean, come on. So this idea of suffering makes sense to me. The nexus for this type of hair removal, that's all really intriguing. But there's also a sense of status in our hair, don't you think? Like a connection to self. You also talked about the ways a person's sense of self can be harmed by hair removal, like in the passage about Guantanamo Bay. Yes, which was, I mean, the part that's so fascinating about that is when there was uh, an understandable global uh, uproar about some of the treatment of detainees that it became known that the uh, U.S. was perpetrating there. There was a lot of discussion about waterboarding, prolonged standing, confinement in a box, sleep deprivation, all those kinds of things. But uh, hair removal was also, um, forced beard removal specifically, was one of the um, techniques that was used on detainees. And the detainees understood this as um, abusive, as degrading, as humiliating, as torturous. International human rights communities formally classified it as illegal and illegitimate in all these kinds of ways, you know, against Geneva Conventions and so on. But commentators in the U.S. on both what you could call the left and the right said, hey, come on, that one, that one's not such a, <laughs> that one's not such a big deal. You know, yeah. the forced, you know, sleep deprivation, sure, but the beard removal, no. And it was a, a really clear window into the very different ideas that people can have about what gets to count as, as abuse and who gets to say. You mentioned and plucked that one of the men who's Beards was shaven in uh, 2002, it looks like, Ghassan Abdullah Sharbi. He had enormous influence among the detainees at Guantanamo Bay because of this very impressive beard. Like in, in some ways, that's kind of a, a sort of a Samson situation, um, considering the cultural significance of beards to the detainees. You know, Samson's power was magnified by his hair. Yes, Yes. And the CIA was very clear that they uh, removed his beard deliberately to emasculate and humiliate him. And it, it had that effect. He experienced it as as emasculating and humiliating in ways that were degrading for him. Um, and his attorneys, you know, spoke out about this and everything. But uh, but again, even um, critics of the detention program, which you know, we might, those of us who were around them might remember how vocal this was, how mm -hmm. large the uproar were, were, were unfazed by this, even though, again, the detainees themselves and their counsel were, were very sure that this was a, a problem. So, um, again, it's one of the things I was trying to track is, so how do these ideas come and go? How do the practices associated with the ideas come and go? And like, what are all the array of forces that kind of shift that from one location to another, from one time to another? So that's the thing about forces, right? They're always by nature kind of competing with each other. I mean, there are plenty of theories that plucked exists to counter. And I recently familiarized myself with this theory that the evolution of hair removal was to promote skin-on-skin -skin contact. Is there any truth to this theory? Tell us about it. Or maybe tell us about what it gets wrong. Sure. Well, the the mystery here that people have been trying to figure out since um, since Darwin and his contemporaries were first kind of kicking around the idea of human evolution was, okay, so if human beings have evolved from primate ancestors, which, you know, is what's taught in every high school and college biology course now, many of us, not, not all of mm -hmm. us, but many of mm -hmm. us take it for granted now, why would we be the hairless mammal? 
when all mm. of our primate kin are so so manifestly hairy or furry. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't make sense. You can watch, if you've ever watched like a baby chimpanzee cling on to its parent, it's holding on, you know, to the mm-hmm. fur, right? Mm-hmm. So evolutionary biologists have come up with a whole bunch of theories about this, including that it was so appealing to have skin-to-skin contact that early hairless hominids wanted to have more babies and that helped them, you know, reproduce more <laughs> successfully and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So uh, there are a number of different theories here. But if you kind of dig down into them, they don't actually hold together all that well. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean evolution is wrong, of course, although creationists, anti-evolutionists have jumped on this to say, like, clearly this is, you know, um, this is a sign that there is an all-powerful creator who has made us ah. separate from other apes and blah, 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 blah. But one of the things that surprised me about that is once I reached back into the 19th century, it turned out that this question was the point of contention between Darwin and a lot of his critics in huh. the 19th century. You know, there was all kinds of controversy when Darwin's ideas came out. We, you know, we all vaguely familiar with that. But it turned out Darwin and Wallace wrote back and forth about exactly this question with Wallace finally saying there had to be a creator who like plucked the hairs off of people. Wow. And, yeah, and and Darwin decided, no, no, it had to be sexual selection. It had to be that early females thought early males with less hair were more attractive and picked them. Of course, you know, doesn't make sense because allegedly female gorillas will pick male gorillas <laughs> with hair. So, you know, it, don't, it all begs the question. But yeah. people in the 19th century understood this question to be a sort of murky one. But we still haven't figured it out, which is why the, a very popular book published some time ago um, was called The Naked Eight, because, you know, the question in evolutionary biology is like, why would we be the hairless, the hairless ape? I mean, naked's interesting too, right? Because early people used animal fur to protect themselves from the cold. So it's like they're trying to put that hair back on. I mean, naked may be hot, but it doesn't keep you warm. (laughs) But then it raises the suffering question again, right? Like, do you need to suffer to be hot? Do you need Ah. to be cold or chilly or uncomfortable in order (laughs) to be desirable in that way, right? So Wow, yes. Um, So then there's another theory called gender social control, or that's a shorthand for it. What's that theory? Yeah, a much more uh, one that you can find even more widely than the kind of evolutionary biology idea, although it emerged, you know, kind of right alongside the naked ape Um, rhetoric. Social scientists, especially feminist identified social scientists, especially writing in the 1970s and 80s, argued that the reason why uh, we have this hairless norm is it's a way to maintain uh, male control of women. As usual. Come on. As usual. Let's draw a line there. We're done. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) It falls disproportionately to femme identified people to remove their hair. Not that you know, people who identify as men don't remove their hair. Obviously, like beard shaving is a very common thing and and so on. But that sort of all over depilation, you know, no mm-hmm. hair on your arms or your armpits or your genitals or your legs or anything um, does tend to be practiced more by people who identify as women or femmes. And the argument there is it's just a, another way to kind of control women's independence and mobility and that it came into popularity then as uh, women were gaining more independence economically, politically, sexually, and so on. And it, it does actually sort of track 
like as women achieve suffrage in different times, depending on racial groups in the U.S., as women say acquired the right to keep their own earnings rather than turning them over to a husband or father, that sort of thing, you can see growing hairless norms expanding. They, they hmm. do actually sort of correlate. But just like with the evolutionary narrative, there's some sort of like big gaps. Correlation is not causation. Um, you can't really see who the, the agent of the patriarchal control is when it's, it appears to be individuals who are opting to remove their hair, right? So one of the things that I got interested in is in this social science literature, the one thing that does come through really clearly when you survey people who identify as women or girls about why they're removing their hair, they say there are social norms and that's why everybody else is removing their hair. But mm. they, the survey respondent, are doing it because they want to, <laughs> uh, <laughs> not because of social pressure. So yes. it's this really amazing gap in that we we can recognize social pressure. We can recognize social pressure directing the decisions of the people around us. In fact, that's how we explain the decisions of the people around us. But according to social science literature, we tend to narrate our own decisions as totally autonomous and our own. <laughs> and we're doing it for our own reasons, not because of beauty norms or any of that kind of thing. Um, so, okay, in Plucked, you have, this, you, have a, you have a great line that appeals to me as a, as a lapsed academic. The line is, the chief virtue of body hair as an object of historical study is that it wreaks havoc on established partitions, rendering their scaffolding unusually transparent. The book seeks to describe that scaffolding. Can you expand on this a little bit? Sure. Yeah, and in, when I wrote that, I was thinking about all kinds of different partitions. So, you know, a, a big one is the idea we have that there are only, I say we in a kind of guarded way there, that dominant culture has that there are only two sexes and that they are binary and there's no overlap between them. Mm. Um, if you look at the history of hair removal and you realize that if you're using hair as a secondary sex characteristic to demarcate those sexes, you're going to be in a whole lot of trouble <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, there's just variation upon variation upon variation. But the same is equally true about the several hundred years of history we have of people trying to classify people into different racial or ethnic groups based mm -hmm. on hair growth, hmm. um, into different age categories by hair growth, totally confounds people, um, even drawing a line between um pre-pubertal or post-pubertal confuses people based on hair growth for various reasons I could talk about. Any kind of demarcations you would want to make between uh, regions, between time periods, between uh, capitalism and its critics, you know, any of these things at all kind of, you can see that these boundaries themselves have to be maintained just like mm -hmm. a hairless leg. It takes a lot of work. <laughs> it it's takes so a lot of attention. It takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of um, support apparatus, you know, like you, you need all the structures around it. Yes, <laughs> right. It keeps overgrowing. It's the partitions. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and, it, and it takes work to remake it. And then it gets remade a little bit differently each time. So hair is more than a cosmetic fixation. It also says a lot about our culture, priorities, and history. When we return, we'll hear how body hair practices influenced early anthropology, too.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Save big money on everything for your spring projects at Menards. We have all of your garden and landscaping essentials. Master Garden Premium Garden Soil contains a slow-release fertilizer that feeds gardens for up to nine months. It produces better results and is ready to use for all your gardening needs. Save big on Menards' great selection of garden and landscaping products. Compare brands in-store or online at Menards.com. Save big money at Welcome back to This is Critical. Today I'm talking with plucked author Rebecca Hertzig about the history of body hair removal and it's, in particular, it's ethnographic history. Years and years ago, I wrote about it. It was like a message board for people with curly hair that really seemed to get at the idea that what defines the global South almost as much as skin color phenotype is hair texture. I completely agree with that. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time for this book in the Harvard Anthropology Library, which is like a museum to 19th century colonialism. You know, there's like masks and all this kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the books, you know, they're all just shelf after shelf after shelf of like racial anthropology, essentially. And I'm going into it with, at that point, 20th century sensibilities, thinking it's going to be all about color and then maybe face shape, eye fold yeah. or nose shape or something like this. And it wasn't. It was hair, 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 hair. So somewhere from the 19th to the 20th century, we decided that skin color was going to be the number one thing we talked about in terms of racial difference. But in the 19th and 18th century, it was 100% hair. Interesting. Yeah. So can you tell me something about uh, colonialism, which, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, you argue introduced new ideas about body hair. And in particular, I was extremely surprised to read your account of how Europeans viewed the hair practices of indigenous people in the United States or in the uh, in North America. Yeah. So the first thing I should say is I looked and looked and looked to try to find uh, source material written from indigenous perspectives. And of course, you can you can find some that was written down in translation or translated later, often by well, always by whites in various times to publish it in the, especially in the early 19th century, the stuff that I was looking at mostly. But the oral records and things of what this kind of early period of colonization looked like that that I was interested in, I only have from the European perspective. So I just want to say that so that the part of the book that's focuses on this is written explicitly from the white and European perspective in this way. But from that perspective, so European colonizers, so it included all kinds of different people. You know, there were religious missionaries, there were um, fur traders and trappers, there were, you know, the indentured people, there were enslaved people brought by European colonists with them. There were, you know, a whole bunch of different kinds of people coming, mm-hmm. saw the indigenous people that they were encountering, who they 
tended to lump together as Indians. Sometimes they would speak specifically about this group versus that group and this group's practices versus that group's practices and try to like delineate them and differentiate them. But they were fascinated by the hair removal practices that Hmm. they saw and narrated this as um, one of the primary differences they saw between the Europeans and the Indians, between the whites. They called themselves whites. They called the Indians Indians. And one of the things that surprised me as, as somebody who studied the history of race a lot, it came up far more frequently than uh, skin color, than, than pretty much anything than, than dietary practices. And in fact, was often linked to dietary practices because people were trying to figure out, the, again, European colonizers were trying to figure out if the visible differences in hairiness they saw between themselves and mm. the people they'd known back wherever they came from, Spain or England or wherever it was, and the people they were seeing was that because of differences in climate, differences in diet, or differences in some sort of racial type, this is what they were trying to figure out, or was it attributable to hair removal practices that they just plucked and plucked and plucked their hair and then it didn't grow back? Hmm. And what I figured out is that this question of whether the the Indians, again, their term, were removing their hair or whether they were naturally different than the whites was the critical question for them because for the colonizers, it indicated whether... Indian people could be assimilated into the European ways of life that they wanted to impose on them, or whether they were going to be fundamentally incapable of being assimilated into European, what they would call civilized modes, because they were different. And which would be which would be which? So if they if they were naturally hairless, meaning not not bearded and wise like the Europeans, mm, <laughs> that it. was the assumption, then they wouldn't be able to govern themselves as civilized people do. And they would make little taxonomies of this that actually linked different racial groups, the perceived, again, all from the point of view of the Europeans, white Europeans, different capacities for governance. Like, yes, they can be civilized or no, they're ruled by caprice and they couldn't possibly govern themselves with the amount of hair that they saw on their bodies. So they would classify people by racial groups and again, type them by hair amount and then link that amount of visible hair to their capacities for self-governance. And when I say they, I mean the most famous European taxonomists and naturalists. So people you would know, Linnaeus, Humboldt, you know, uh, later Darwin was picking up on this tradition. Lewis and Clark, when they went around the country, kept track of the hair growth and who was removing hair and how they were removing hair. So anybody you could think about who was writing about racial taxonomies in the 18th and 19th century had something to say about hair, body hair. And body hair in particular, because of course, specifically, we're, we're leaving out head hair, which has its whole own tradition. Its own deal. Right? And, and <laughs> you know, I mean, I think, I think, I don't know, I was going to say all of us, but that's maybe too ambitious. But at least some of us sometimes are amazed by the fact that the tendency is to want all the hair on our head and none of the hair on our bodies. And it just starts to feel very strange. Like you just think that, I don't know, should there be some kind of transplant happening or, you know, yeah, just something. I mean, the effort to shore up the number of strands you have on your head versus uh, the rest of your body. Exactly. Really demonstrates how strange it is. And then, yes, for men um, and male-identified people, the, the beard too, um, it, it, what seems strange about this this collision between Europeans and um, indigenous North Americans is that it, 
later times, you might think someone was more civilized for being clean shaven. But this is a time where hairfulness or hair, hairiness, hirsutism, is considered a hallmark of civilization. Once again, demonstrating how arbitrary the lines are. Totally arbitrary. And to my astonishment, like completely inverted by our time period, right? So yeah, at this time, again, the colonizers from another land come and violently displace and remove the indigenous people who they are seeing as less than them, as worthy of colonization, removal, genocidal displacement, in part, not entirely, but in part because they're hairless, because they don't have the sign of manhood, the sign of civility, the sign of the lush, full beard. But fast forward to any science fiction picture you've seen where some quote unquote, not a term I love, but it's the term that shows up in the movies, an alien race comes to Earth and tries to colonize Earth. And they're always like distinguished, think about Close Encounters of the Third Kind, by like zero hair at all, like zero hair on the head, zero hair on the eyebrows, zero hair. So the, the narrative has been inverted, right? That like now they're seen as sort of more advanced and more maybe highly evolved because they're hairless, but the Europeans saw the indigenous people as less advanced, less civilized, less evolved <laughs> for the same reason. So like the the ideas can flip 180 degrees in the other direction. I mean, this, this makes sense in style too, as you've suggested. I mean, the sort of beards, no beards at, for certain periods, you know, I'm thinking of the 1980s and 90s, I guess. You just thought beards will never come back. And then all of a sudden, every white guy in Brooklyn looked like um, Herman <laughs> right. Melville, right? right. Um, and, um, you know, that seems, seems to be more or less going strong. I'm in Philadelphia right now, lots of beards around. I want, so I want to talk a little bit about hair removal methods because you were talking about plucking um, in the case of, uh, of indigenous people, that the suspicion was that they might have plucked every single hair out of their bodies. And uh, I think I'm just a medium hairy person, but even to pluck out every hair of mine would be a bloody and painful and, I don't know, (laughs) decade-long process because some would grow back while I was working on the others. Exactly, right. So was plucking, is plucking an early, uh, when did we get to shaving? Tell me about hair removal over time. So... According to these European accounts, a lot of the methods that we're still familiar with were being used by Native peoples of North America. So um, plucking was one. Thomas Jefferson writes about people plucking in notes on the state of Virginia. Hmm. But according to other, uh, you know, accounts written by colonizers, people would use um, like clamshells, the sharp edge of a clamshell as a razor to scrape the skin some people would singe hair off, which isn't something that Americans tend to do so much anymore, but it's been super common in the past in the ancient Greece. How in the world, how do you singe hair off without burning yourself? Uh, well, maybe you've never accidentally done this. I have a lot of friends who've shared stories of this where, like, if you get too close to the barbecue or something, yeah. your hair will, like, curl up and singe off and you can, like, actually, like, just brush it off that way. So I don't oh. advise anybody to try it, <laughs> but it is possible. You can rub it off with uh, sharp and abrasive material. So people still do this with sandpaper. They sandpaper off their hair. Wow. But you could do it just as well with anything abrasive, you know, an abrasive sand or something like that. Paste made out of honey, you know, would work like an early or resin. Tree resin would work like a a wax. So then the techniques that 
have been added in the years since are then the more electrical and mechanical and chemically complicated ones. Is this like like Nair? Yes, yes. So chemical depilatories really kind of took off in the early 19th century. And I, I argue in the book that that was because animal processing was making innovations and in kind of how to process large numbers of animal hides. Hmm. And then chemists kind of adapted those techniques to making manufactured depilatories. This is like animal rendering you're talking yes, about, Yes, yes, right? yes, exactly, yeah. right. Yeah, it's right. so like dissolve. Butchering, tanning, yeah. Oh, yeah, good stuff. And then that turns into something you smear on your leg. Exactly, exactly. In the ads, it just, I don't know, if it, I don't even know if people still use Nair, but I, the, in the ads, it looked like you were just putting like this white, beautiful cream on and then suddenly it all the hair came off. But you could tell by the scent that something uh. like completely obnoxious what's going on. Right. There's, yeah, the chemical process is it's dissolving the hair. Um, So it's it's pretty hardcore what it's doing. In the early 20th century, there was a a huge, it's a a terrible story. Um, One of the most popular depilatories was made out of thallium acetate. It was called Karemlu. And it it killed and maimed all kinds of people. Um, It would, thallium acetate gives you, you know, kind of sustained, neurological damage. So people went blind, they lost muscular control, they, many died. Um, and it was actually one of the things that pushed for the creation of what we now know as the Food and Drug Administration. There wasn't anything in place to protect consumers from these kinds of things. And Kremlin wasn't the only one, but it was one of the kind of mass casualty events that kind of led to that development. It's important to, I think, chronicle all these out seemingly kind of limit cases of how far people will go just to, you know, remind us that somehow this is a priority for humans and has been for a long time to have the right amount of hair in the right place. Yes. And an affiliated kind of angle to that that continues to kind of fascinate and disturb me is that pretty much everything we'd be talking about here is unregulated. You know, in the United States, we we regulate pretty closely, drugs that you ingest in your body. But things that you apply to your body, mascaras, blushes, lipsticks, um, they're all regulated in a totally different way, which is to say voluntarily by the manufacturers of these products. And I think we all purchase them and slather them on ourselves, buy them on the internet and have them shipped to our house without really thinking about what that means. But what it means is that they haven't been pre-market tested on clinical subjects in blind, peer-reviewed ways in the sense that we have come to understand the prescription pharmaceuticals we take might be. I think even Nair, whatever's in Nair could burn you if you left it on too long, something like that, yeah. For sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can look through the medical literature and there's some pretty, you know, ghastly stories. So you... um you noticed that that hair removal has been considered a hygienic measure. So this is sort of now we're not in the 19th century with mm-hmm. the likes of bearded Darwin, but more recently that there's something about keeping clean. You know, athletes do it to be aerodynamic. And, uh, you know, I know that the uh, the people that did that, the Brazilian hair removal that I won't describe here exactly, but that is every single hair around your genitals comes off, describe it as being clean and 
yeah, I mean, what impact did it have on people with more body hair, people with curly hair, people with coarser hair to think that it's having hair that actually just comes out of your body is somehow unclean? Huge, huge impact Um, and impact in pretty much any way you'd want to measure it. Like, obviously, there's the pain if you're removing hair from your perineum or your anus. Yes. Um, But there's also just the labor. You have to take time out of your day from whatever else you might want to be doing to kind of do that upkeep. There's the the money. You know, it's not cheap to remove all this hair from all of your body. And then there's the part that we almost never talk about, which would be the environmental consequences of Hmm. all of that, right? There's the waxes. And as I show in the book, a lot of them come from byproducts of petroleum refining. You know, this is not a a green (laughs) green activity necessarily using disposable plastic razors and chemical depilatories and all this sort of stuff. But where that all came from, that emphasis on cleanliness and hygiene goes back to the late 19th century. And certainly Darwin had had a lot of influence here because once the idea gets broadly spread through popular culture that having hair is a sign of our animal ancestry, right? Which this is in the late 19th century. Every conversation about kind of civilizational evolution is profoundly racialized, profoundly violent Hmm. in that way. Having hair kind of was linked with everything degraded and abjected from white mobile society in the late 19th century. As new waves of immigration start coming in, giant waves from Southern and Eastern Europe that, you know, in kind of unprecedented numbers, it gets kind of attached to that rhetoric. There's a rise of xenophobia. There's a rise of like active eugenic campaigns, not just to control reproduction, but also to control the borders. There's a whole bunch of eugenic immigration policies that get put in place in the early 20th century. And that rhetoric of cleanliness and hygiene is all wrapped up together with those kind of those racial class national projects of setting out what the United States is going to be, what the boundaries of the United States are going to be. The boundaries of the individual body are sort of (laughs) going through the same process of like, nope, that's not us. Scrape, scrape, scrape. That's not us. You know, banish, banish, banish. This is going to be us, this white, smooth, civilized clean, modern was a big word in all the advertisements Mm -hmm. kind of image. Apparently using random characteristics to vilify entire ethnic groups is a longstanding American tradition. We'll hear more about hair and the cost of keeping it off, quote, undesirable places after the break. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. 
Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley, in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back to This is Critical. Today, Professor Rebecca Herzig is teaching us about hair, not the musical. So what is amazing looking back is how quickly there was kind of universal adoption of some kind of hair removal, at least in the United States. So adolescent boys learning to shave and then shaving every day or maybe every other day, lest you get the dread five o'clock shadow and then forget about it for women, right? Like if I go get my eyebrows shaped, they're ne- they're always quick to say, lip, chin, you know, there's all kinds, there's so many places you could have hair, ears out of your nostrils. And then that's, they don't even do any leg thing. Then you have to go two doors down to get your legs done and all these competing places that offer wax or different procedures. So how did this become such an industry and also such a habit? I mean, sort of the idea of like a boy's going to learn to shave. I mean, it just is strange to even think that you you don't actually have to shave. Or you do, you know, like uh, if you if you have hair in places or visible in ways that are considered counter-normative, you're subject to harassment, violence, mm-hmm. expulsion from your employment. I've been harangued by friends, by strangers on the street, by, you know, so like it's not a... For, um, for like hairy legs? Or yeah, for, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. For any visible hair that somebody thought shouldn't be visible. So, um, so not just... Teasing or bullying, which is itself, as we know, you know, uh, affecting enough can be psychologically debilitating for people. It just keeps you in line. It keeps you in line, right. But but also, like, in the book, I share stories of people who lost their employment, you know, who were reported to physicians by their spouses. And, you know, spouses were seeking to dissolve the marriage because of hairiness in places that they didn't want or that sort of thing. So people have been institutionalized for wanting hair or not wanting hair where it was supposed to be because they were seen as being gender transgressive and were subjected to all kinds of intrusive medical procedures, you know, in that way. So there's a history of yeah, physical, emotional, psychological containment, you know, around all this. So so we kind of do have to in some ways, right? Social norms aren't, they're not soft. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're, they, yeah they're, they have they're, force. Yeah. They're non-negligible. Yes, yeah, exactly. Exactly, um, exactly. But it is, I, I totally take your point. It's pretty astonishing how quickly these norms spread and then became just completely um, taken for granted. And it's the taken for grantedness of this. At the time I wrote the book, you know, I, I teach undergraduates, 18 to 22 year olds, almost exclusively. And they're always interested in talking about the things we do to our bodies, like what makeup norms are, what fashion norms are, blah, blah, blah. We can always get a good class conversation going about them. And they're always ready to see no matter what their gender identity is, they're always ready to see like makeup norms as maybe, you know, maybe not so feminist, right? (laughs) You might want to think about like why some people are expected to have, you know, a bright red lip and other people aren't, whatever. So they'll think about these things and they're ready to critique, engage, historicize, contextualize, any of this kind of stuff. Hair removal, when I first started working on this, they could not see. And there was a fascinating moment in one of my classes where... Uh, somebody who identified as a young man, you know, pointed out in class that men just have hair and women don't. And it's just that way. They're just born that way. And I kind of laughed because I thought, you know, he knew what I was working on and he must be saying, but he, he didn't. And he really didn't know 
that there were practices and technologies and techniques and all this stuff being used by even the people sitting around him in the classroom to remove their hair. And it was a really striking moment because I didn't want to embarrass this young person, especially in front of his peers. And yet I needed to educate not just him, but anybody else in the room who might be thinking that, you know, women like shoot out of the womb, like hairless and stay away for the rest of their life. Except for eyebrows and eyelashes and head hair, but yes. Exactly. So I just like said, okay, that's a, it's a really interesting perspective. Just let me get a show of hands. How many people in here have removed hair from your body today? And Everyone in the room, you know, including all the people who, you know, were identifying or as as women or girls, raised their hand. And you saw this young man's face just like he had no idea. He had no idea. And it and so it was that level of taken for grantedness that I wanted to try to up, uproot a little bit. Like, you know, that none of this stuff is natural or inevitable. It all came from somewhere. And I was trying to figure out where. Yeah, I mean, as you were talking, I was thinking, well, what hair have I not thought about? And then I thought about, we're talking about these tiny little tufts of, well, what is hair? Oh. (laughs) How about that? It's a fascinating (laughs) thing. It's a fascinating thing. And and one of the, the best parts of doing this research, I got to talk to people working in molecular biology today, contemporary molecular biologists who are working on the biology of hair. And it turns out, I, I can't take us too far down this rabbit hole because I could be here for an hour. It's fascinating. They don't, uh, we don't actually know the most basic thing about why human hair grows and then continues to grow when other mammals' hair, like think of your dog, will grow and then stop at a certain length. Like we don't even know that at a kind of scientific level about why that happens. And the hair biologist I talked to who would, you know, get all excited and hop up and down because, you know, this is so such fascinating stuff said, you know, like the answer to that question is the answer to life itself, right? Like why do cells grow? Why do some cells die? Like if we knew that, we'd cure cancer. If we knew that, we'd end aging, right? But we don't know that. So we don't even know why human hair keeps growing and we have to keep shaving it off if you want to be hairless. Wow. And there's something so uncanny about hair as well, because it's like not quite living and not quite dead. Absolutely. Absolutely. It goes back to that, that, you know, the crossing of the, of the boundaries. Yes. yes. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It is it, the part that we see above the skin is dead, but it's growing from, you know, a a living cell. And so it, it literally is traversing that boundary. And if you think about it, you know, you can look down at the hair on your arm if you have any. Um, It's growing from inside your body across the boundary that we think of as the boundary of ourself, the skin, at least in Western individualistic culture, not everybody frames it that way, into social space, right? And it's, it's the thing that crosses from the inside of us to the outside of us. That is so trippy. Isn't it so trippy? Yes. And then you and then you can manipulate that boundary between the inside of yourself, your inner self, and the social world, right? The world that people perceive. Nothing will make readers think more about the hair on their body than this book, Plucked. I just find all of this so fascinating. Um, thank you so much for being here, Rebecca. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, it's a total delight. <laughs> That's it for this week's episode of This is Critical. Make sure you don't miss next week's episode by following us, follow, follow, or subscribing on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you listen. 
And if you like what you hear, please take a moment, less than a moment, a second, to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts. It helps other people learn about the show. For more information and to keep tabs on us, follow me on Twitter at page 88 and at this critical pod. If you've got a question or a cultural creed you think deserves another look, send us an email at thisiscriticalpod at gmail.com. This is Critical is made by me, Virginia Heffernan, and Stitcher. Corinne Wallace is the producer with help from Morgan Givens. Tracy Samuelson is our editor. Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme. And Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and stay critical. Stitcher. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.